your Bibles, please open them to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 this morning. And our passage that we're going to be looking at is Romans 1 verses 16 and 17. I know for many of you, Thanksgiving is a time for football. And for me, for whatever reason, Thanksgiving is a time for basketball. I don't know why, but NBA goes much better with my turkey than football. And so I was thinking this week about the, the Lakers, and my mind was taken to Laker coach Phil Jackson, who is known for his reluctance to call timeouts. If you know uh, Phil Jackson's coaching style, when difficult times come on the basketball court, he prefers to allow his players to work out their difficulties on their own on the court rather than bring them into a huddle. And I think his attitude is, you guys are millionaires, you guys are paid to do this, I shouldn't have to repeat the same things over and over again. And when he does call timeout, he's heard not going over any new and novel strategies, but restating the basic fundamentals for his players to execute on the court. For example, in one timeout, Jackson is recorded in saying to his players the following, stop the ball, take charges, don't reach, move your feet, close the lane, and I quote, etc., etc., etc. You almost hear him saying, these are the same things I've been telling you over and over again, the basic fundamentals. In any team, there comes a time when you need to call a timeout. You need to get everyone on the same page. You need to repeat the basic um, things that make us what we are. And what I want to do this week and next week is I want to essentially call a spiritual timeout for us as a church. What I'd like us to do this Sunday and next Sunday is to gather our hearts around the basic fundamental truths of the gospel. Their hearts would be renewed in what the gospel is and that we may move forward in greater unity as our focus is on Jesus Christ. If you are a member of Cornerstone Bible Church, you know that we have been over the last two years, learning about the centrality of the gospel to the Christian life. We have been learning that the gospel is not only central to our conversion to Christ, how we came to be Christians, but we've been learning that the gospel is central to how we grow as Christians, to how we mature and continue on in the Christian life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15:3, For I deliver to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. Paul says the central truth in all the Bible is the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the grave. It's the gospel that Jesus has come to die for our sins. And this truth is of first importance. There are many truths that are important in the Christian life, but the gospel is that which is of first importance. We've been learning that the gospel is not only powerful enough to bring unbelievers to faith in Christ, but it is also powerful enough to bring believers to maturity and to sanctification. And that we as Christians do not grow in our Christian faith by leaving the gospel behind and turning to things like discipline and commitment and superior uh, diligence in order to affect our sanctification. 
But no, we are saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now that we are saved, we continue to grow in our salvation by ever deepening our understanding of the gospel and increasing in our reliance upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. C.J. Mahaney put it this way, we never move on from the cross only into a more profound understanding of the cross. The gospel isn't one class among many that you'll attend during your life as a Christian. The gospel is the whole building that all the classes take place in. Rightly approached, all the topics you'll study and focus on as a believer will be offered to you within the walls of the glorious gospel. Because we understand the gospel is central to all of the Christian life, our desire as a church has been to centralize the gospel in everything we do. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? If the gospel is the power of God and we want to experience that power as a church, then we need to put the gospel in the center of everything. We, put the, we want to put the gospel in the center of our worship, the gospel in the center of our preaching, our teaching, our service, our fellowship, our care groups, our ministry to children, even our ministry overseas and missions. We want the gospel to work in our lives because we want to experience the fruits that it bears in our hearts. And that has been our heart every Sunday, week in, week out, as we have been desiring to place what is of first importance central in the life and the heartbeat of our church. I know that you've been with us, and for many of you, God has been working in your hearts through the gospel. Your hearts have been bearing fruit as you have been beholding and standing in awe of this message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And what I want to do this week and next Sunday is I want to take a time out and I want us to just gather up our thoughts, gather up our hearts and rally us around the central truths of the gospel that we may be able to move forward in unity as a church. The text that I'd like for us to examine for our time out is Romans 1 verses 16 and 17. This is Paul's thesis statement for the book of Romans, and in this passage, Paul writes this For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. This passage is Paul's thesis statement for the book of Romans. If you were to take all 16 chapters of the book of Romans and you were to distill it and to summarize it and condense it into two simple verses, these two verses is what you would get. And we know that the book of Romans was written in order that Christians might understand the gospel. Paul writes the epistle of Romans to the church at Rome because although the church at Rome had the gospel, although they already believed the gospel, although they were Christians who understood the gospel, Paul knew that the central issue in their lives was they had to be taken deeper into the gospel. They had to know the gospel more and rest in its truths and understand its implications for life. Paul's heart's desire for the Roman Christians was that they would grow in their sanctification. His heart's desire is that they would grow in what he calls the obedience of faith in chapter 1, verse 5. And yet he understands that the strategy to get them to grow in respect to their faith is to take them deeper into the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. And so he writes this book in order to deepen and to enrich the Christians at Rome, their understanding of the gospel. And so in the book of Romans, what we have is a theological explanation of the gospel. We have Paul writing as a lawyer, reasoning logically from point to point in order to enfold the riches of the gospel so that Christians would understand and be strengthened in their faith. This book is a book about the gospel. Martin Luther said the book of Romans is purest gospel. This epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament. And John Calvin said that if a man understands the book of Romans, he has a sure road open to him to the understanding of the whole of Scripture. If you understand Romans, you understand the gospel. And if you understand the gospel, you understand all of Scripture because what is the central message of all the Bible? It is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so there could be no place better for us to spend these next two weeks than in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. Because to enter into the truths of these two verses is to understand the heartbeat of the entire book of Romans. And to understand the book of Romans is to be taken deeper into the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in Romans 1, 16 and 17, we will find two things. Our outline will be very simple. First, we'll see Paul's attitude toward the gospel. And second, we will see the reasons why Paul had this attitude. Point number one, Paul's attitude. Point number two, the reasons for his attitude. Let's look first of all at Paul's attitude toward the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. You'll note here that Paul states his attitude toward the gospel in negative terms. He describes his attitude toward the gospel in terms of what it is not. He is not ashamed. Now before we get to that negative description, I just think we need to see the positive descriptions of his attitude throughout the book of Romans. Because elsewhere, Paul describes his attitude in positive terms. For example, in chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. In chapter 5, verse 2, Paul says that he rejoices in the gospel. He exults in the glorious truths of the gospel. In Romans chapter 8, Paul describes the triumphant spirit of hope that the gospel gave to him in the midst of his trials and tribulations. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sore. Paul says, the gospel has given to me a heart of confident hope, even in the midst of all that distresses me. Because this is the wonder of Christ's work on the cross. In Romans chapter 11, Paul describes really how overwhelmed he was with the gospel. Really how awestruck he was with the gospel. Really how he felt like the gospel was so magnificent, so majestic, so amazing that he could never fully understand it. 
And he is breathless in awe at the end of writing all that he has done in unfolding to us the gospel of Jesus Christ and all he could say. It's in chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I think it would be fair to say that if you looked at Paul, you would find a man whose heart had been set ablaze with the gospel. His heart had so drunk of the satisfying truths of the gospel that it was welling over with praise and with joy. And all you had to do was open Paul's mouth. And if you open Paul's mouth, his heart would come spilling out. And what would come spilling out was gospel praise, gospel worship, gospel joy, gospel thanksgiving, gospel teaching, because the gospel had taken such root in his heart, it had set his heart on fire. In Ephesians chapter 1, we have an example of this, where Paul begins his letter with praise to God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And He opens his mouth to say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And it's as if Paul can't stop. It's as if he just has so much in his heart he wants to praise God for because he is so amazed by the gospel and what Christ has done. That in verses 3 to 14 of Ephesians 1, it is one long run-on sentence in the Greek. It just doesn't stop. There's no periods. And he just goes on and on about how he's blessed us in Christ. How he's chosen us before the foundation of the world. He's adopted us as children that we would be his own. He has redeemed us through the precious blood on the cross. He's forgiven us of all our sins and all our trespasses. He's revealed to us the mystery of his will in the gospel. He's given to us an inheritance in heaven heaven that is reserved for us and he's given to us a down payment of that inheritance which is the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And Paul goes on and on about what God has done for us in the gospel and then he says, remember, we didn't deserve any of this. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. We walked according to the will of the devil We were children of wrath headed for an eternity in hell. Yet God in his mercy sent his son to bear our sins, to pay the price that we ought to have paid so that we may be lavished and showered with his grace. These truths had taken such root in Paul's heart. They They had set his heart on fire. And so all he had to do was open his mouth and that's what he wanted to do to the church of Rome. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you because I've tasted of the wonders of what is found in the gospel. Positively, Paul's heart was set ablaze with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you'll notice in Romans 1.16, he chooses to describe his attitude in negative terms. He doesn't say, man, I'm pumped about the gospel. I'm excited about the gospel. I'm amped about the gospel. But instead, he says it negatively. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
I'm not ashamed. Now, why bring up the issue of shame in relation to the gospel? Many people have taken this verse as an encouragement to bold evangelism. They've used this verse to say, see, look, Paul, he, he wasn't ashamed of the gospel, so we as Christians shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. We should go out and proclaim the gospel. We should be bold and unafraid about the gospel. That's the central message of this verse. And I don't want to discount that application at all. I think that's a good and legitimate application of verse 16. But I believe that the idea here is much larger than evangelism. It's much broader than simply ministry to unbelievers. And the reason why I believe that is because if you look at the context carefully, Paul is emphasizing not his ministry to unbelievers, but his ministry to believers. Chapter 1, verses 7 to 15 are all about Paul's ministry to the church at Rome. In chapter 1, verse 7, he says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. In verse 8, he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. In verse 9, he says, I am praying without ceasing, always in my prayers for you, asking that somehow by God's will I may at last, now at last succeed in coming to you. In verse 12, he mentions that he wants to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And in verse 15, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Who are the you that he wants to preach the gospel to? They are the you in verse 7. All those in Rome who are called to be saints. Paul is describing his ministry not to unbelievers, but to believers. Now don't get me wrong here. Paul was an evangelist. I'm sure he wanted to go to Rome and he wanted to evangelize unbelievers. But in this context, he's mentioning and describing his ministry to believers. And in that context, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of preaching the gospel to the church. Now, why does Paul say this? I think there's two things going on here. First of all, I think the gospel is offensive not only to unbelievers, but the gospel is offensive to believers as well. The gospel is not offensive, only offensive to non-Christians outside the church. The gospel is offensive to Christians who are inside the church. Why is this? Because the gospel proclaims to us that we are not nice people. The gospel proclaims to us that we are the chief of sinners. The gospel proclaims to us that we have nothing to commend ourselves to God except for the cross of Jesus Christ and his righteousness alone. The gospel proclaims to us that we have nothing to boast of except for the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that message is not just offensive to non-Christians, it's offensive to Christians. I mean, it's offensive to me. I remember when Pastor James came back and started preaching to us the gospel. And I remember I struggled so much in my heart because the issue in my heart was that I had this spiritual resume of things that I had done that I wanted to use to commend myself to God, that I wanted to bring to God and to say, God, you have to accept me because look at all these good things that I have done. 
and the gospel proclaimed to me that, Dan, you have nothing to commend yourself. You come to God the same basis, the same way that you did on the first day you were saved. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of Christ's work alone, and you have nothing to boast of except for the cross of Jesus Christ. I mean, I had my list books that I have read, schools that I had gone to, big-name teachers that I sat under, mission trips that I had been on, ministries that I had been engaged in, length of service that I had done for Christ. And I wanted to boast in these things. I wanted to use these things to exalt myself above other Christians. And the gospel said to me, Dan, all of those things are rubbish. In light of Christ's righteousness, the only thing you have to commend yourself to God is the cross. And that was offensive to me. I had a hard time with that. The gospel's not just offensive to unbelievers, it's offensive to believers. Yet Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'll preach the gospel to unbelievers, to believers, because it is the power of God. I think a second thing going on here is Paul's past. Have you ever come into the church and and you're so aware of your sins that you're ashamed to sing gospel songs? You ever come to the church and you're so overwhelmed by the sins that you've committed that you're ashamed to hear gospel teaching? You come into the church and you're ashamed to lift your hands in worship because you know I'm such a sinner. And you're ashamed to believe that the gospel applies to you? I believe that was a little bit of what's going on here is that imagine if, if, if I, five years ago, had been persecuting people in this church. Imagine if I had been putting people in your care group into prison. Or if I had murdered one of your members at Cornerstone Bible Church, and then five years later, here I am, and I'm preaching the gospel to you, I would be ashamed. I would be embarrassed. And yet that was Paul's biography. He was a murderer, he was a blasphemer, he persecuted the church, and yet now he's a gospel preacher and teacher to the church at Rome, and yet he's saying, you know what, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed to preach to you the gospel. You know why? Gospel applies to even wretched sinners like me. The gospel is big enough and sufficient enough to save sinners even as bad as me. And though I was the chief of sinners, and though I deserved to go to hell, God's love and his grace was more than abundant. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And if you want proof of that, look at me. The gospels, sufficient to save me. And so he says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. Because the gospel applies even to people like me. I think for some of you, you come and you hear gospel preaching, you hear gospel teaching, you believe it applies to everyone but you. I mean, it's easy for me to believe that the gospel applies to John Piper. I know God. God loves John Piper. I don't know if God loves me as much as he loves John Piper. It's easy for me to believe that, you know, God, the gospel really applies to Tim Keller or all these, all these, megastars in the Christian church, but it's hard for me to believe that God loves me, that I'm just as much a child of God as any other believer in Christ. 
And I think some of you, you have that struggle in your heart. You're looking at other Christians. You're saying, I, I, I believe that God loves this brother because, man, he's a great guy, but how can God love me? You're ashamed to believe that the gospel applies to you, and I just ask you to take encouragement from Paul because Paul says, you know what? The gospel applies to even the worst of sinners, and if you want proof of that, just look at my life. The reason why Paul had this attitude toward the gospel is he had experienced the power of the gospel for himself. He had tasted of the sweetness of the gospel for himself. So I talked to a lot of you and you're like, you know, some of my friends just gush on and on about deep fried turkey. How, how good it is. How sweet it is, how succulent it is, how juicy it is. You, once you've had deep fried turkey, Dan, you'll never want anything. You never go back to roasted turkey again. It's so good. And if I were to stand up this morning and try to sell you on deep fried turkey, you know what? I wouldn't be a good spokesman because I didn't have deep fried turkey this Thanksgiving. We had roasted turkey. But you know what? I know about deep fried turkey. I've seen them fry the turkeys on YouTube. I've seen the guys start fires in their backyard, and I've seen the how-tos of the TV cooks and how they show you the turkey. I can tell you about deep-fried turkey. But I can't tell you personally of how good it is because I've tasted it for myself this weekend. Some of you, you could, you've been eating deep-fried turkey for the last three days. If I were to bring you up, you'd, you'd come up here and you'd preach a 30-minute sermon on the glories of deep-fried turkey. Oh, it's so good. It's so, and I just want you to know that when Paul is talking about the sweetness of the gospel, he's just not, not talking about what he's learned about the gospel. No, he's speaking as a man who has tasted of the goodness of the gospel himself. It is so good to him. It is so satisfying to his heart that he wants both unbelievers and believers to experience the goodness that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, I, the gospel is so good, it is so satisfying, it is so beautiful to my heart that I count all things as loss. I count them as rubbish in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Paul says, everything else in my life it's, it's dung, it's rubbish, it's waste in comparison to the gospel. It's not that these things are bad. It's not that these things are not worthy. It's that the gospel is so good. The gospel is so beautiful. The gospel is so satisfying to my heart that nothing else compares. I've tasted of its beauty in my life. Brothers and sisters, Cornerstone, that's our heart's desire for you as a church. That's our desire for every single believer here at Cornerstone. We don't want you just to know about the gospel. We don't want you just to rehearse facts about the gospel. Oh, this teacher said this about the gospel, and that book says this about the gospel. You know things about the gospel, but in your heart, you haven't tasted of it yourself. No, we want you to enter into personally the sweetness and the joy that is in the gospel so that you would look at everything else in your life, and you would say, you know what? 
Everything else in my life is good. It is beneficial. It's a blessing. I mean, I love my family. I love my home. I love my school. I love my relationships. I love, you know, all these things are blessings from God, but nothing compares. Nothing compares to the sweetness of the gospel. That's our prayer for each one of you. That's our prayer that the Holy Spirit would do this work in our heart so that we, like Paul, would have our hearts set ablaze with the power of the gospel and we would say, you know what, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I personally have experienced how satisfying it is. From the first point, Paul's attitude toward the gospel, we move to our second point, and that is the reasons for Paul's attitude. Paul gives two reasons in this passage why he was not ashamed of the gospel. And we'll look at the first this morning and we'll look at the second. We'll save that for next Sunday. The first reason why Paul was not ashamed of the gospel was he says that the gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God. It is the power of God. Now, let me just, the purpose of a timeout is to restate the obvious. I don't mean to insult your intelligence. I don't want to talk to you as if you're five-year-olds, but I want to boil this down as simply as I can so that there is no misunderstanding as to what we're saying. So let me get down to the fundamentals. The word gospel means good news. Good news, there are two words that you need to know. First, it is good news. And second, it is good news. The two things you need to know about the gospel if you're going to experience the power of God in your life is first, it is good. And second, it is news. The gospel is good news. Yes, it is offensive to the human heart. Yes, it is offensive to unbelievers and believers alike. But it is good news. God's heart toward us to bring us to eat of the gospel and to drink of the gospel is a lot like my grandma at Thanksgiving. You know, my grandma, she gets very passionate about me eating a lot at Thanksgiving. Every year she yells at me, she berates me, she's, but it's all with this gigantic smile on her face. She said, you got to eat, you got to eat a lot, look, eat. And then, she, and then if I just take one serving and don't come back for a second, then she finds me in the next room. She says, eat more. It's so good, we've made this all for you. And my grandma doesn't want me to bring food to the table. She doesn't want me to, to, to bring my little potato chips to the, this great feast. She just wants me to come and eat and to enjoy. And that's the heart of God toward us when it comes to the gospel. He's saying it's good. It's good. The gospel is the triumphant declaration of what God has accomplished for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the joyful tidings that, that guilty sinners such as us can be forgiven and reconciled by God based completely upon Christ's finished work. The gospel is not 
bad news in the sense that you as a human have to work your way up to God's favor, but the gospel is good news in the sense that it is meant to induce joy and satisfaction in our hearts as we come to behold that the feast is all prepared, that the meal is all ready. God doesn't want you to come and add to it. God wants you to come and eat of it, to feast on it. It is good news. And secondly, you need to know that the gospel is news. It is news. Tim Keller makes, uh, takes pains to emphasize to our hearts the distinction between good news and good advice. He quotes Martin Lloyd-Jones who said this, Advice is counsel about what hasn't happened yet, but you can do something about it. News is a report about something that has happened which you can't do anything about because it has been done for you. And all you can do is respond to it. Keller notes that all other religions give good advice, not good news. All other religions tell you things that you ought to do, things that you should do, things that you must do. If you are to work your way into God's gracious favor, Christianity, the gospel, is news, not advice. It proclaims to us that we do not need to do anything to work our way into God's favor. We need to accept what God has done for us to bring us into his presence. Bill Piper said it this way, all other religions say do, Christianity says done it's all been completed it's all been paid for the work of salvation has been done by christ and all that is left for us is to receive by faith the salvation that god provides for us in christ the gospel is good news not good advice and keller says that the ministry implication of this is as follows. We as the Christian church believe in declarative preaching. We believe in declarative preaching. I love that statement. We don't believe in prescriptive preaching that is divorced from the good news. We believe in declaring the great acts of redemption that God has accomplished for us in Christ and calling the church and calling unbelievers to rejoice in this news, to believe this news, to drink of this news, to gaze at this news. And Paul says that when you understand and hear and receive the good news of God in Jesus Christ, that news is power. It's power. It's going to work in your life. It's going to change your heart. It's going to change your marriage. It's going to change your relationships. It's going to change your selfishness. It's going to change your bad habits. It's power. To experience that power, you have to understand that the gospel is good news, not good advice. I believe that the ministry implication for us as Cornerstone Bible Church 
is this. We believe that as a church, we must return to a fresh understanding and experience of the power of gospel indicatives. Let me say that again. We believe that we as a church must return to a fresh understanding and appreciation for the gospel indicatives that are in the Bible. If you read your Bible, you know there are gospel indicatives and there are imperatives. Indicatives are what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Imperatives are how we are to live in light of those indicatives. The two are always married together. They are never separated. They are always presented together as an inseparable unit. Because of our legalism and the self-righteousness that is in our hearts, our hearts gravitate toward the imperatives of Scripture and desire to divorce them from the indicatives of Scripture. We go to the Bible and we read the Bible as if it is a to-do list, as an instruction manual, prescriptions for our lifestyle, for our living, when primarily the Bible was written as a great indicative in order to tell us the great story of redemption from Genesis on all the way to Revelation of the great work of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. What we as Christians must do to experience the power of God that Paul speaks of in verse 16 is we must come back and experience afresh the power of gospel indicatives. Sinclair Ferguson said this, the great gospel imperatives to holiness are ever rooted in indicatives. These indicatives of grace are able to sustain the weight of the imperatives. The apostles do not make the same mistake that's often made in Christian ministry. For the apostle, the indicatives are more powerful than the imperatives. So often in our preaching, our indicatives are not strong enough. They are not great enough. They are not holy enough. They are not gracious enough to sustain the power of the imperatives. As a result, our teaching on holiness becomes a whip or a rod to beat our people's backs because we've looked at the New Testament and that's all we ourselves have seen. We've seen our own failure. We've seen the imperatives to holiness and we've lost sight of the great indicatives of the gospel that sustain those imperatives. Listen to what he's saying here. He's saying that our problem is not that we don't pay attention to gospel indicatives. He says not that our problem is we ignore the gospel indicatives. What he is saying here is that in our hearts, in our church, in our souls, the indicatives are not strong enough. They are not great enough. 
They are not holy enough. They are not magnificent enough. They are not gracious enough to sustain the imperatives of the Christian life. If we experience the power of gospel indicatives, if the news of what Christ has accomplished on the cross for us become big enough, large enough, glorious enough, joyful enough, satisfying enough in our hearts, then the imperatives of the Christian life then become a joy and not a burden. But if the indicatives are not large enough, then the imperatives become a burden to our lives. And God's commandments are never meant to be a burden. They are meant to be a joy. 1 John 5.3, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. But they are only a joy if the indicatives are big enough, if the news is big enough in our hearts that it gives rise to the imperatives. I liken it as my personal illustration is that you can have a train and the train is on a track. But the train will only move if the engine provides power to propel it. Once the engine is activated and propels the train down the track, you need the track because if you don't have a track, the train's just going to go everywhere it wants to. But the track guides the train down a particular path. And in the same way, the gospel indicatives, what God has done for us in Christ, is the engine, is the power, is the propulsion, the motivation that stirs our hearts and sets our hearts afire so that it propels us in our Christian life. And the imperatives are the track that guide us down the path once we are moving if you have only the imperatives without indicatives, you have the track, you know where you ought to go, but you have no power or propulsion to go there. And so we must have a fresh return to the great indicatives of the Bible. Many of you know that you ought to be committed to church. You ought to be passionate about church. You ought to serve at church. You know the imperatives, but because you have neglected the indicatives, you have no heart to do that. You have no heart for the church. Many of you know that you ought to love your wives. Many of your wives know you ought to submit to your husbands. You have the imperatives, but because the indicatives are not large enough, big enough, joyful enough in your heart, you don't have a heart to do that. Many of you know that you ought to forgive. You ought not to be bitter. You ought not to be angry. You have the imperatives, the track. You know you ought to go in this direction, but because the indicatives are not big enough, glorious enough in your heart, you don't have a heart to forgive. And for you to experience the power of God, you must return to the news. The news of what God has accomplished for us in Christ. I was at a parenting conference few weeks ago where there's many great biblical truths and gospel truths portrayed and in the middle of this parenting conference one of the brothers raised his hand and he said he said I'd like you to address what do I do if the children in my home are not mine what if they are not my biological children 
And I don't know if the issue was that the, the, the children had been adopted or if this was a second marriage. I don't know the ins and outs, but he was saying, I know I ought to love them. But what do I do if they're not mine? And I'm struggling with this. And one of the brothers raised his hand. He said, I have the same exact issue in my home. The children of my home are not mine biologically. And for a long time, I struggled with loving them. I struggled with embracing them as my own. I struggled with, with embracing them with, with a heart that I know I ought to have as a father. And he said, the turning point in my life was when I began to understand what God had done for me in the gospel. When I began to understand that I am not a natural child of God, that I am a child of wrath, that I am a child of the devil, and if God in his infinite love and mercy adopted me into his family and sent his own son to die for me and now embraces me as if I am his natural child. When I understood that truth, my heart began to change. And I saw my children differently and I began to embrace them as if they were my own. You see, brothers and sisters, that is the indicatives have power they have power. That brother knew he ought to love his children, but until he came to the indicatives, he had no power to fulfill the commands of God. When the gospel indicatives take root in our heart, it provides the engine to propel us forward. So for me, my, latest, my struggle this, this year was forgiveness. I, mean, I just struggle with forgiving people, people who had wronged me. You know, sometimes it's like my kids, right? You know, they, they offend me and, and I'm like angry at them and I know I ought to forgive. You know, I, I'm a pastor. I know the verses. I know what I ought to do. And it would be the kind of thing where I would, you know, pray in the morning and say, you know, Lord, help me to forgive. And, and just out of willpower, just, I forgive that person. It's, it's over. Bitterness be gone. Then I get up from my seat and I'm like, why are they, I'm, I'm mad again. Why do they do this? And repeat, repeat, repeat. And, and I struggled with this and it was only when I came back to the indicatives of the gospel, the news. It was only until I came back and marinated my heart in the truth that I am the worst of sinners. The issue is not this person's sin against me. The issue is my sin against God that I had sinned against God, and yet God in his love and mercy has forgiven me. And God not only has forgiven me, God continues to forgive me. Every day of my life I sin against him. Every day of my life I offend him. And yet he continues, continues, continues to forgive me. It was only when I came back to the indicatives that my heart began to change. And that not only did I know what I ought to do in forgiving but I had a heart to forgive. You see, the indicatives and the imperatives are married together. And what we are calling the church to is a fresh experience of the power of gospel indicatives, what God has done for us in Christ. Paul says, verse 16, the gospel is the power 
of God. And then he says, it is the power of God for salvation. You say, Dan, I understand salvation. Salvation was when I was a non-Christian, I became a Christian. Well, it's much more broader than that. Salvation in the Bible is presented in three phases. We have been saved in the past. We are being saved in the present. And we will be saved in the future. We have been saved in the past from the penalty of sin. We are presently being saved from the power of sin. One day we will be saved in the future from the very presence of sin. Theologians have used the three stages and described them in terms of justification, our past salvation, sanctification, our present salvation, glorification, our future salvation. Yes, you have been saved, Christian, but you also are being saved and you will be saved. And what Paul is saying in verse 16 is that past salvation, present salvation, future salvation, that all of it as a package is empowered by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God for all of salvation. And I believe that Paul, in this verse, although he encompasses all three phases of salvation, what's really being emphasized in this text is he's saying the gospel is the power of God for our present salvation for our sanctification. Say, Dan, why do you believe that? I believe that because of what he says in verse 16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who, and he uses the present tense, who is continually believing. He's saying, Christian, you have been saved from sin's penalty. But today, this Sunday, right now, you are being safe from sin's power. Right now, you need the salvation of God in its present form. You need the power of God to change your heart, to free you from your selfishness, to free you from your sinful habits, to free you from the expressions of the flesh. You need the power of God right now in your present sanctification. And he's saying, he's calling all of us through this text to believe the gospel, not as an act in the past, but as an act in the present. Continue to believe and to behold the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we do, Paul says, this will be the power that transforms our life. I don't know every detail that's going on in each one of your lives. I know that many of you have trials, many of you have temptations. I know that many of us, we have circumstances. Many of us, our hearts are just dry, they're weary. Many of us are thawing from the madness of this world on this weekend with consumerism and shopping and I don't know what your struggle is in detail, but I do know this, the, the main issue in each one of our lives, the main issue for you and for me is that each one of us today needs spiritual power. We need power. We don't need more tips and techniques. We don't need more applications. We need power. And Paul says, you know what? 
If you want power, it's here. It's available. God is not stingy. The power is in the gospel. The power is in the news. Come believe in it. Rejoice in it. Taste of it. Eat of it. Allow it to fill your heart like Paul and set your heart ablaze. And your train will begin to run down the tracks that God has laid out for you. You might be saying, Dan, how do I believe more in the gospel? Is there a specific indicative that you want my heart that will, that will give me the power to motivate my Christian life? And next week, we're going to look at specifically one great gospel indicative that has rocked the world that rocked Martin Luther's world and rocked the world through the Protestant Reformation and continues to rock our worlds today. And we will see that the gospel is not only the power of God, but that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And we invite you back for that time next week. Let's close our time in a word of prayer. Our Father, our hearts are filled with praise to you, for you have done it all. You have accomplished the work of salvation from beginning to end. We praise you that we have good news. We have good news as a church. We have good news for our hearts. We have good news for our families. We have good news for the world. We have good news because you have sent your Son and he has died on the cross. And he has paid for every single one of our sins. And we come only to receive and to rejoice in what your son has done. Oh, Father, we repent of seeking power in anything else other than your gospel. We repent of seeking power in our applications or in our techniques or in new organizations for the church None of those things hold power. Only the thing that holds power is your gospel, is the message of Jesus and him crucified. So, Father, help us as a church to orient our lives around the gospel, that we would experience its sweetness, and that as a result we would live transformed lives for your glory. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.